G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We interrupt our regular programming and our coverage of the primeval history to bring you a special episode of the podcast. Not that special, but... Anyway, the plan is I'm hoping to be able to explain some important stuff before we go any further in our coverage of Genesis 4. Specifically, we're going to talk about names. Is that because we're about to start talking about genealogies? Yeah, that's right. Oh, boy. So it's okay if I just hang out my headphones and kick back while you waffle on for half an hour then? I wasn't planning on listening because, you know, let's be honest, uh, genealogies are, are boring. Hey, no, you can't do that. I need you here for this. This is really important and it's not actually that boring. Sorry, what, you were talking to me? Uh, so it's not actually that boring. Oh, okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> One of the issues with understanding the names in the Bible is the conflict between the ideas that, on the one hand, the names have an origin independent of Scripture, predating the Bible by anywhere up to 2,000 years. But on the other hand, the names fit the stories in which they're found with regard to the meaning of the names and their function in the story, which would lead us to conclude that the authors fabricated these names as a storytelling device. Is this supposed to keep me interested? I'm yawning already. All I'm hearing is blah, 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 fabricated device. Are we reading names that were given by the parents of these people? Are these actually Hebrew names in the first place? Or were they adapted into Hebrew language from elsewhere? And are the names preserved in scripture actually the original names or have they been modified and adapted by the author to make a point? These questions are leading us into two distinct fields of inquiry. On the one hand, we want to know about the culture that produced these names in the first place. On the other, we want to know what the biblical author is doing with them. Well, some of us want to know and some of us would rather be in bed. I'm going to ignore that. Okay, then. These are the things that we've talked about in small doses so far on the podcast over the last three and a half seasons of the show. We talked about Adam, the name of the first man, and how we see that name in the first five chapters of Genesis. So far in our study, we've not seen Adam used as a personal name. But we will get there at the end of Genesis 4, so that the transition into chapter 5 introduces us properly to the man whose name was Adam. And we know that the word Adam means man, or to be more politically correct, person or human. We discuss the connection with the Hebrew term Adamah, which describes the soil, translated as the ground. Going even further than that, we talked about the association with redness, which comes from the word dam, the word for blood or the colour of blood, which is, of course, red. And we talked about how the association with the ground and specifically the dust of the ground was intended to show the man that he was just one individual among a great multitude of indistinct persons. More recently, we talked about the fact that God called them Adam, which represented the atonement of blood imputed upon the humans by the word of God in order to consecrate them for service as God's representatives. Wait a minute. Is this just one of those episodes where you recap stuff that you've already said before? Because if that's the case, I've got some laundry I could be doing instead. Actually, I just remembered I have to... To scrub my bathroom tiles with a toothbrush. Yeah, yeah, very impressing matters. Right, you can scrub mine when you're done. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that's all great stuff. And we get all that meaning from looking at other biblical words that are related to this one and seeing how they get used and what they mean. And then we can see the connectedness of the meanings and their application to the specific situation presented by the use of the word Adam. 
which is great until we find that name in other ancient texts that are not Hebrew in origin. And then we discover that the use of that name carries similar meaning to other people groups in the ancient Near East and has done for thousands of years prior to the occasion of the writing of scripture and in locations far away from the lands of the Bible. What do we do with that? Because if we're being honest, the natural conclusion drawn by our awareness of that information is that the biblical story did not originate with its Hebrew authors, but with other cultures that influenced them. And certainly that's been the conclusion drawn by critical scholars of biblical literature over the last 200 years. Oh, this just got interesting. Not. <laughs> now, you might have your doubts about biblical names appearing in other languages and other people groups further afield. You know what, I'm going to start being less antagonistic and say, you know, I do have my doubts about biblical names appearing in other languages. And also, now that you mention it, in other people groups further afield. Well, since we started talking about Adam, let's have a look at the other languages that give us similar names. We find Adam with minor variations, according to dialect, written in Akkadian language at Ugarit. We find it in Aramaic. We also find it in Syriac, Mandaic and Arabic. It also occurs in Sumerian language. So the ancient Hebrews did not invent this name and they did not invent its meaning. In fact, we're going to find a similar thing with most of the names we encounter as we journey through scripture. So you're telling us that Adam's name is older than the Bible itself? Yeah, that's right. But we shouldn't find that surprising. Most of the names that we will encounter in the primeval history as we read through these stories are actually names that were not in use in the ancient Near East during much of the biblical period. They are much older names that existed during the time described in the narrative, but that were seldom found anywhere in the historical context of the authorship of these stories. That's an important observation because it gives us the strongest indication we have that these stories were actually handed down from the formative period of Israel's existence as a nation. There are only two names that occur in the primeval history that have no discernible origin outside of scripture and are not found prior to the first millennium BC. And those are Cain and Lamech. That's some food for thought right there. Now, that is interesting. Now, tell us some more about those names. No. Well, I will, but not today. Oh, man, just when you had me interested. Ah, so all those in favour of mosaic authorship of the primeval history should find great consolation in the fact that nearly all of the names that occur in those first 11 chapters had fallen out of use within a few hundred years of Moses. We still observe significant evidence of late redactions in the text, and there is the matter of those names that do not have an early precedent, which point to a late construction of the final form of the primeval history. So the presence of these early names does not preclude the possibility of an exilic context for the final composition of our text. These are undoubtedly very old stories. But as I mentioned earlier, the providence and the attestation of these names points to their broader context, but it's a different matter entirely when contrasted against the use of the names in a literary context where meaning and function become the primary considerations. And it's for those reasons of meaning and function that I don't worry about the early attestation of these names in other cultures, language groups and nations elsewhere in the ancient Near East. For those who came in late, way back when we first started this podcast series, our first few episodes were focused on helping us to get a grip on the way that ancient people understood the world around them. And one of the things we talked about was the creation myths of other ancient cultures, and we made some comparisons and drew some contrasts between those and the biblical creation account. So if you're just coming in recently and you haven't listened to those early episodes, I really recommend that you do that for a lot of good reasons, but mainly because it will remind you 
of some of the important distinctions between what's going on in other religions like those of the Amorites and what the biblical text is doing. And I mentioned the Amorites in particular because they played such a massive role in determining the general thrust of ancient Near Eastern culture. As we get toward the end of this podcast series discussing the primeval history, we will observe the origins of the Amorites, and we'll see how it was their way of life and their religion that swept through the land of Canaan before descending from the north into Babylon, taking Mesopotamia by storm before dispersing across the world at Babel. And it was the language of the Amorites and the other Semitic language groups that gave us the origins of most of the names that occur in the primeval history. I mentioned before that the name Adam occurs in Sumerian. It's actually most likely that this name entered the Sumerian vocabulary from the direct influence of the Amorites. So this information tells us some pretty interesting things. Firstly, it gives us great confidence that the stories found in the Bible were not some late concoctions devised as a response to the Hellenization of Israel. Secondly, we can confidently say that the names in these stories did not originate with the Hebrew language. All these people who tell you that Hebrew was the original first language, the mother of all tongues, and just plain ignorant of every other language that ever existed prior. Let's not forget that Abraham himself was an Amorite. But all that stuff is just surface level, easy reading conclusions from this information. The real good stuff comes when we recognize the difference in what the biblical text actually affirms in comparison to other ancient Near Eastern literature. And that's where the names in the Bible take on a value unique in this context. That's not to say that it's only what makes scripture unique that makes it good by any means. But as a work of literature, the use of specific names in the Bible is definitely intentional and therefore worth taking the time to understand. And I'm coming back again to Adam because his name is such a strong polemic against the idolatrous teachings of the Amorites and Babylonians. And also because I don't want to spoil what's coming as we continue through Genesis 4 for the rest of the season. Yeah, I was going to say, how come you keep talking about Adam? It uh, makes sense now. You can't hear the name of the human in scripture without hearing the imputation of sanctity by Yahweh Elohim when it says in Hebrew, Bayomer Elohim, Bayomer Naaseh Adam Besalmenu Kitmutenu. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And I mentioned before that the Hebrew word for blood is dam. If you didn't hear it in the text, you weren't paying attention. How do we know it's there? Because the author doesn't have to use the word Adam to say man. He could say ish or even enosh. But Adam is distinct. Adam is set apart. When God gives this name to the man, he is imputing the sanctity and the representation of life that belong to God by means of the representation of blood. He's making the man ritually clean for service in sacred space as God's representative. In all of this, God remains the source of all good things, and Adam is required to maintain his holiness in order to be able to partake of this abundant life and wisdom. That's what the Garden of Eden story is all about. Adam doesn't have anything that God didn't give him. Neither does he retain anything that he can take away with him. That's why we continue to take the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, or the Eucharist, the blood of Christ continues to sanctify us in an act of atonement every time we partake. Yeah, because we're the temple now, right? If Christ dwells in us, we need to maintain that sacred space and keep it pure. Yeah, that's right. Contrast this with Adapa, who is variously the first or the seventh man created, depending on which text you read. This is a Mesopotamian myth in the story of Adapa. The main character is a man who's a very wise sage, and he is the priest of the god Enki, otherwise known as Ea. 
Adapa goes fishing because Enki likes fish, and as a priest, he's got to supply the offerings. While he's fishing, the south wind blows hard and tips him out of his boat. Adapa is pretty cheesed, so he breaks one of the wings of the south wind. He shouldn't have done that. Next thing he knows, the sky god Anu has summoned Adapa to appear in the heavenly court. Enki gives some advice to Adapa about what he has to do when he goes to see Anu. This comes in the form of a few rules that he has to make sure that he doesn't break. Ah, let me guess. No bright lights, no food after midnight, and whatever you do, don't get them wet. Gremlins. Yeah, it's kind of like that. He tells him to wear clothes for mourning to make sure that he accepts the anointing oil and clothing that's offered and definitely not eat or drink anything because if he does, he'll die. And Enki gives Adapa some things to say. Adapa goes up to the heavens where he's met by two guards who happen to be a couple of gods who used to be in the pantheon, but then they went missing. They ask him why he's dressed like that. And he says he hasn't stopped being sad since they left. So the flattery trick works and they let him in to see Anu. Anu's pretty ticked because of the broken wing of the wind. Yeah, I can relate to that. I get offended when people uh, break wind too. <laughs> so so Anu is like, what did you do that for? And Adapa explains about the fishing and all that. And it turns out that Anu kind of likes Adapa. So he offers him special clothes and anointing oil, which are gratefully received by Adapa. But Adapa remembers the words of his master Enki and makes a point of refusing to take any food or drink because he remembers that Enki told him that they were the food and drink of death. Well, it turns out that was a bump steer because it was actually the food and drink of life, and if Adapa had partaken, he would live forever. Now, we have a tendency to interpret that story, as I've actually explained it previously on this podcast, we have a certain parallel with the Garden of Eden story, in that the divine being who is being deceptive, namely Enki, manages to trick the human out of their chance at immortality. But I think reading it only as far as that direct comparison goes, it's kind of selling the story short, because... This is a story about divine knowledge and who gets to have it and who doesn't. This is ancient Mesopotamia. This is Babylon, the home of the gods and the cradle of civilization. It's not a story about how mankind lost their shot at immortality. It's not the origin of sin or something like that. The story of Adapa and the South Wind is the story of how Enki manipulated the situation in favour of humanity to ensure that mankind's wisest sage, Adapa, would safely return from the abode of the gods with the divine knowledge that he possessed so that it could be handed down through the generations, retaining divine wisdom in the hands of mortal man. You see, if he had accepted the food and drink of life, then he would have become one of the gods and thus unable to return to the land with the benefits of his divine wisdom. So the deceptive god who whispers in the ears of the humans in opposition to the creator god is depicted as the good guy. And the moral of the story seems to be, do whatever you can to keep divine knowledge in your own hands because otherwise the creator God will keep it all for himself. Basically, that means that the difference between the Garden of Eden story and the story of Adapa and the South Wind is this. In the Mesopotamian story, the humans guard the divine wisdom and the creator cannot be trusted. But in the Bible, if the man is going to be able to live according to his purpose, he is ill-equipped to do this work on his own he needs to trust God. The creator can be trusted and he must be trusted if mankind is to achieve the glorious potential that God has for him. So all of that is to say that the similarity between Adam and Adapa goes beyond the fact that they both start with A. It's more than just the fact that they're referred to as the first men in their respective stories. And it's more than just a number of parallels that seem to be evident in the story. This is about who humans are in relation to God. 
Adam represents a humanity that has become everything that they are because of the Creator, not in spite of him. And that distinction is made clear in the elements that make up his name, as well as the particular way that his story is told. So the Adapa story is significant because we have a name very similar to Adam, and the character has a similar role to Adam in that he has a priestly role and he spends some time in sacred space. And we also have the common theme of divine wisdom. But there are some other stories from Mesopotamia which gives us elements of human identity that are reflected in Adam, even though we don't get a name as such in the text. Didn't you say that there was a story about how the gods made mankind by killing another god? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I've mentioned that before. In, uh, in the Enuma Elish, the god of Babylon, whose name is Marduk, takes credit for the creation of man. And in Tablet 6 of that story, he tells Enki that he will make them from his own blood and bones. But there is another variant on the story in which, having defeated Tiamat, the primordial chaos monster, Marduk chooses the god who instigated the whole problem with Tiamat in the first place and sacrifices him, using his blood mixed with the earth to create humanity. And if those elements sound familiar, it's because we have heard about both of them as we explored Genesis 2. But there are some profound differences when it comes to the way that these texts use those common elements. In the Babylonian creation story, the idea is that it is the essence of the divine that comprises the vital part of the human being. In the Bible, God takes a man who is already alive, remember our earlier discussion about what it means to be the dust of the ground, and imparts his spirit, the Ruach of God, to give purpose and function to the man, thus making him a living being in that functional sense. The subtle difference there is that when God forms a man who is the dust of the ground, he isn't creating the man from scratch using mud or clay to make servants for himself. He's creating living, breathing representatives of himself by giving functionality to humankind. Perhaps most significant is the fact that the impartation of the Spirit of God gives the man purpose and direction, but does not constitute part of who he is on an ontological level, nor does it dictate his movements. Whereas in the Babylonian story, the fact that humans are fashioned from the life essence of a troublesome and mischievous God basically condemns man to a life of evil because it is built into his nature by decree of the gods. And it also means that mankind cannot break free of his dependency on the gods, who in turn require man to meet their own needs. Anyway, the reason we're even talking about this is because we're examining this name, the name of Adam, and showing how the choice of this word in particular is intentional, because the blood in the Babylonian story consigns the humans to sin and to servitude, but the blood in scripture makes us clean in the sight of God and fit to dwell in his presence. And it does that without inflating us with false ideas about our own divinity. We can't really make it much clearer than that. How is it that the name Adam turns up having been absent from West Semitic languages as a whole in the sense of being used as a name for over 600 years by this point? None of this stuff makes any sense unless you're prepared to take it as a whole. And that means you need to be reading the word in its context. And hopefully you understand that I'm talking about the use of these words as proper names in scripture not just the root that they're based on or the way that they function as ordinary nouns or verbs in the everyday language of the Bible. These names are deliberate and intentional and placed there for our instruction, not just so that we know what noise to make when we refer to a person, and certainly not so that we can verify the so-called historicity of these characters. Every name in Scripture has a lesson to teach us, and that's a huge part of what makes the genealogies in Scripture so important. So wait a minute, you mentioned historicity. Are you saying these aren't people's real names in Scripture? Sure, I mean, it's kind of obvious, isn't it? How come Abram is called 
great father, even though he's nearly 100 before he has any kids? How come Shem means name? And then we find out all the important people in the story are Semites with Semitic names. How is it that Semitic names even exist in a bunch of stories about people that existed before there were any Semites? Uh, yep, yep, okay, good point. I guess we're down that rabbit hole now, but none of this makes the Bible fictional, though, right? Oh, of course not. We've talked before about this. It's all about the truth. It's about what Scripture is actually teaching us. The point of these stories isn't proving that Enoch's name was Enoch. The point of the stories is to preserve some truth that actually is important. That's what makes genealogies so great. This was never about figuring out who's related to who or how old the world is or where different nationalities come from. It's so much more important than that. We're learning how to understand ourselves as people and we're coming to terms with God's trustworthiness and reliability and we're learning to let go of ourselves and trust him. We're learning to find hope in spite of the mess we've made. And we're finding out that things always get worse before they get better, that God is always there with his face toward us, and that things will get better in the end if we will just come back to him. Mm. And that's the whole message of Scripture, isn't it? Yeah, and, that, and that's the point. Every line, every character, every place, and every stroke of the pen is there to guide you into that truth. That's so much better than a boring list of names. It sure is. Next week, we're going to come back to Genesis 4 and get into the descendants of Cain, and we're going to get more of a taste of how cool these genealogies can be. Excellent. But for now, it's time to get answers to your giant questions. We've got uh, Q&A coming up next. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Kim sent us this question through our contact form on the website, giantanswers.com. Kim says, this is a very short question, although I am pretty confident it will require a giant answer. Why did God put the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden if he was providing all knowledge and understanding to Adam and Eve already? Was it out there to be a test? Was it there to introduce evil? Why do you think Eve and Adam were so enticed to partake of it? Thank you. I read your book and loved it. Thank you for sharing your insight with others. I've learned more about the biblical scripture since listening to your podcast and reading your book than I ever did previously. Wow. Awesome. Thank you so much for those kind words, Kim, and I'm really glad that you've been getting so much out of this material. And so for those listeners who have come in late, Kim's questions relate to the material that we covered back in seasons two and three of the podcast, where we talked about the situation in the Garden of Eden, which describes what we've come to know as the fall of man. If you have the time to review those two seasons, well, you probably don't need to listen to the whole lot, but that's where you're going to find it. I have addressed those questions in those episodes, but I don't mind just touching on it briefly here. And if you want more detail, you'll have to go back and review the material from the last two seasons. So we read that God has placed these trees in the Garden of Eden. And I believe the intent was that at the right time, these trees would provide the appropriate wisdom that the humans in the garden required. And you will recall from those previous episodes that the trees themselves are a representation of divine beings who had a responsibility to impart that wisdom. So the trees are not additional to the wisdom that God gave. They are the means by which God gave that wisdom. And the purpose of God providing that wisdom was for the benefit of mankind. And it certainly would have served for their benefit had they used it appropriately. 
and that would have been a matter of simply waiting for the right time when God may have chosen to give them permission. I don't see the provision of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as some kind of a test or as any kind of necessary mechanism by which to introduce evil. As for the reason why it was so tempting, I think that just comes down to human nature. I don't think that Adam and Eve were people who were different to us in any respect, as I made clear in the podcast in earlier episodes. I don't believe that they were caused by God to be perfect. Rather, they were encouraged to respond to the higher calling of God above their animal nature and selfish desires, and that's where they failed. I don't think that God was testing the humans. I think that they were testing him instead of trusting him. And I think they showed their true colours when they tried to take the power to determine their own destiny in their own hands, rather than trusting God to work it out together with them. Thanks again for sending that question through, Kim. I really appreciate that, and I hope you got something out of this answer. Again, if any of that needs a bit of unpacking, I would encourage you to go back to those earlier episodes from Season 2 and 3 of the podcast and just kind of marinate in that material for a bit. And for those listeners who might be new to the show, I would definitely recommend that you go back and check out those episodes because all I've done here is a very brief overview without much in the way of explanation. Now, uh, I reckon we've got time for another question, Chris. Uh, what do you got for us? Sure, we can do that. This question is from uh, Carrie through the Answers to Giant Questions Facebook page. Carrie asked, just finished episode seven, The Mouth of the Ground. Really good stuff. I have a quick question. Considering the great evils that the governments of the world are guilty of, including blood sacrifice, do you think that we share in that iniquity as individuals, like the subjects of Cain did in the murder of Abel? Hmm. Again, this is a really good question, and I just want to encourage our listeners and say that I am really impressed with the calibre of questions that we're getting, which show a great depth of understanding of the material. And that's encouraging to me because it means I'm getting the message across. Carrie has asked a really good question regarding the corporate implications of sin and specifically in the area of ritual sacrifice and that kind of thing, where sacrifices and offerings are being made to gods that don't deserve our allegiance. It's not necessarily an easy question to navigate because of the massive cultural shift that we have to overcome in order to consider the difference between a biblical approach to this kind of thing and the way that our Western culture today would handle it. But I'm going to operate from the premise that the Western individualistic worldview is actually in the minority, even today. Because in much of the world, for the entirety of human history, human civilization has been oriented around the idea of community and corporate identity. It's a very real divide between cultures even today, and for proof of that, I don't need to look any further than my own backyard, so to speak. The struggle of Indigenous Australians to reconcile with those who settled Australia in the name of the British Empire has been tough going. And nowhere is that more clearly apparent, in my opinion, than in matters of corporate responsibility. The constant refrain of the Indigenous is that white people should take responsibility for the harm that was done against the Indigenous in the past. And yet the current generation of descendants of the colonisers continue to push back and say things like, blame our ancestors, not us. I didn't take your land. I was born here and that kind of thing. So you can see how the individualism of modern Western society has removed any sense of responsibility for past wrongs off its own shoulders, and we've been quite happy to pass the blame back to prior generations or individuals who made the decisions rather than the people who elected those officials and that kind of thing. That simply doesn't wash with anyone who has never lived in that kind of culture where the actions of a few don't reflect the entire community. Once you get your head around that kind of thinking, it starts to become a bit more understandable why we have situations like the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. Or another good example might be Korah's rebellion. Biblical culture was no different to the way that it's been through the majority of the world and the majority of human history. Individuals don't only speak for themselves. When they speak, they represent the community, whether as an elected official or just an ordinary member of the community. No man is an island. 
And this applies not only in situations where a person has acted and brought guilt upon the entire community, but also in situations where that individual has had the support of the community, or even where the community has neglected to act on their responsibility to keep that individual in check. We've all heard the old saying that it takes a village to raise a child. By the same token, the whole village is accountable for the actions of that child. And so that's the way that we need to be looking at this because we shouldn't think of our Western way of life as somehow superior to that of the rest of human civilization. As I said, the biblical model of community displays this kind of thinking and God did not appear to be concerned with changing it to suit our tendency toward individualism. Outside of our modern Western individualistic approach to things, the honor-shame culture is prevalent. And in that kind of society, you find your identity as a person in the way that you conform to the culture of the community, rather than seeking individuality by identifying yourself and how you differ from the community. So it was in your interest to be a law-abiding citizen, not because the law said do X, but because the community does X. So when we bring this back to the notion of things done in the name of foreign gods, then we certainly do find ourselves either complicit or guilty by association. And you might think that that isn't fair. Well, all I'm going to say to that is, what have you done about stopping these practices? When did you speak up and disavow your leaders and policymakers who brought this into effect? Because if you haven't done the right thing as a community and helped to bring the community around as a whole into conformity with the righteousness of God, then you are complicit in that sin. That doesn't stop at the ballot box. If there's more that you can do and you haven't done it, then repentance is called for. And that's a tough pill to swallow, which I also am swallowing. As I say, we've had our issues in Australia with regard to this kind of thing as well. And if you want biblical examples of this, I mean, they're not hard to find. Just have a look at guys like Daniel and Nehemiah and pay careful attention to the prayers that they make on behalf of their people. Those are not prayers being made by people who can sit back and wash their hands of it and say, well, I'm not one of the individuals who did that thing, so it's not my problem. These are guys who recognised that as members of a community, they were just as responsible as the individuals within that community who were primarily responsible. So we all have a part to play in bringing our prayers and petitions before God on behalf of our respective communities, and we all have a part to play in repentance of wrongs committed against others and against God. And as long as there's something we can do to help steer our communities back in the right direction, then we have an obligation to do it as members of the community. The other option, of course, is to take those who are unrepentant and remove them from the community, which is a frequent command in scripture, but we have to examine ourselves first. We could keep talking about this for ages, but we've only got limited time on the program. Hopefully that gives you a good idea of where I land on this issue, and I hope that it's given you food for thought and occasion to pause and reflect on the nature of our society as a whole. Thanks again for submitting this question, Carrie, and I look forward to doing it all again with our listeners next week when we continue our reading of Genesis chapter 4 and answer more of your giant questions. And don't go anywhere because we're going to be talking about Enoch, the man, the myth, the legend. Ooh. Yes, that certainly was food for thought, Tim, and I hope that all of our listeners take it to heart in the spirit in which it's intended. It's It's been another great episode, but it's time for us to wrap it up, say goodbye until next week. We'll see you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. 
in the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscc.com. Please welcome and have us on socials. Don't forget to subscribe to the Rent Club Show. Send us all your questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. G'day folks and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's a show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We interrupt our regular... What was that? I don't know. It was trying to be regular, but it didn't happen. It was irregular. Yeah. <laughs> I'll speak to my local physician. Sounds like someone dragging a bag of aluminium cans down the street. The precious cans. <laughs> no, you don't. I've seen them first. <laughs> These are, this is about humans. Art. Let me try that again. Genesis 1, 2. Genesis 2. <laughs> Uh, to help steer our communities back and remove them. Yes. <laughs> Enjoy your noggy goodness. Oh, I've got to go and get some more now. Oh, yeah. One litre of eggnog was never going to last me more than an hour. Seems like we only had this conversation a year ago. It's like that, isn't it?